Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, we've, uh, we're going to be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer today. We're also going to be talking with Caleb Stewart about um, peace and justice and where the youth community is when it comes to addressing the ongoing concern of nuclear war. We're also going to, I'm also going to share with you a reflection from the Great March for Climate Action. And Kathy and I are also going to discuss a book called The Terracotta Camel, which interestingly was in part inspired by Birds of Bees Urban Farm. First, though, I want to thank Kathy for joining us on the program. And actually, before I thank Kathy for joining us on the program, I also have to thank the Des Moines Irish Session for providing the music for this program and also congratulate the Des Moines Irish Session for a great job at the, uh, at the Waterloo, Irish, let's see, the Iowa Irish Fest in Waterloo. There we go. Uh, it was quite a weekend. Anyway, Kathy, welcome to the program. Thank you. So we saw Barbie. We saw Oppenheimer. We didn't do what some people do and subject ourselves to both movies at once. I can't sit that long. No, I can't sit that long either. That's why my sisters took music lessons and I danced growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. We, we went there. Expect the, the two movies at the Varsity Theater begin at about the same time. So we went there expecting to see Oppenheimer. And then we just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. We, <laughs> so need, we, we needed something light for that particular <laughs> evening. And Barbie was light, but, light, but, but important. Yeah. So, yeah, the start of the movie, um, I, I really love the opening scene. And yes. again, okay, spoiler alert, if you, have, if you have not seen these movies and you don't want to hear anything about them, then go listen to country music and join us again in Ignore about 10 us. or 15 You've minutes. You've probably seen all these clips on uh, your Facebook sure. reels anyway. Anyway, the opening scene, for those who, I mean, is there, isn't everybody familiar with 2001 Space Odyssey? Um, most people are of a certain age. I mean, I didn't see it till two years ago, so I'm probably the only one in my age but bracket. But you knew of the opening scene, no, I didn't Space really. Odyssey. I don't think I did. No, no, no you had really. never seen that. No, with the uh, the the obelisk. Or yeah, so a mm-hmm. bunch of uh, primates, barely barely uh, not quite even human, mm-hmm. sitting around watching the uh, formation or vi- visualizing the formation of this obelisk, which I think becomes well, it just appears. It just appears. Yes, and I think it becomes an object of worship. Well, and then somebody throws a stick at it, and that invents war or something. I don't know. Well, <laughs> they, somehow they inv- they realize they could use bones from a dead animal for tools to and weapons. Make other make other animals dead, and eventually mm-hmm. other primates dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the scene in Barbie is, of course, the little girls are sitting around with their dolls, and they're, they're like homely little dolls. They're babies. They're all babies. Baby dolls. Babies. And that that the point was that. That is the the aspiration for all little girls from you know from the time they're little right. is to be mothers and that's pretty much it and that's how doll dolling used to be mm-hmm. yeah baby dolls until and all of a sudden in place of the obelisk um, in two thousand one Space Odyssey a a tall lanky image of Barbie appears mm-hmm. it's the original <laughs> Barbie in it's, her striped swimsuit and sunglasses it's brilliant actually and the girls the little baby the the little kids. The dirty little cave kids look up and they are mesmerized. And they have 
they know there's something else possible for them, and they, they bash up their dolls and throw them. <laughs> they start beating the but, crap out of their dolls. Now, I played with baby dolls as yeah. a girl, of course, and then uh, I did play with Barbie dolls and had a babysitter who had a collection of all the Barbies from the first one on because her name was Barbara. <laughs> okay. Um, shout out to Barbara. Wow, what a lady. Um, anybody who can babysit uh, seven children at the same time. Uh, talk, talk about, you know, what women are supposedly bred to do. Like, you know, watch out for those babies. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, how, how do you, do you interpret the, the opening scene as a favorable comment, commentary on, on the need for women to embrace, uh, you know, purposes in life other than just take caring for little babies? Not the need to, but the opportunity to. Okay. And and it's true that you know women have, in the culture I know, been primarily slated for, for that. And then if you choose to do something else, then you're supposed to do everything. You're right. supposed to. And then, as, as the movie pointed out, if you have a career and a family, the conflict is there, and you can't do the right thing by anybody's standards. Yeah, but doesn't the opening scene also imply that the uh, the the glorification of the quote perfect human body has become kind of a of a, of, a, of a national, if not global, religion? That also that's then that's commented on in the movie too. Sure. I don't think the movie shied away from that. Uh, the the producers did a great and the the director the the you know the writing the acting did a great job of uh, walking that line between uh, calling out Mattel for the you know stereotypical Barbie that every girl is supposed to try to grow up to be and the career Barbies that um, that you know they they supposedly put out there as, as aspirations for girls as well. Yeah, and the movie makes the point of saying that even these, you know, the, these, uh, these aspirations are probably way too high pressure well, in some ways. Some ways. I mean, there's, that's, that's okay, but if that's, the, you know, if it's one or the other instead of both or you can't just be an everyday person, um, you might be, again, missing a point about the whole personhood of woman. Hmm, right. And of course, the whole purpose sort of of, of uh, man in the movie, at least at first, is to be uh, Gaga over Barbie. And that's and to, in Barbie Land. In Barbie Land, it's just uh, you know, if, if if you're Ken, and you even get a glance from Barbie and a smile, that makes your day. Until Ken arrives in quote the real the world, real world, and discovers that hey, men are in charge. This is awesome. And he goes <laughs> for it. He goes for it. So, um, it's. Uh, and that's when my heart went out to to Ken, like, oh, no, Ken, don't fall for that because you're just going to feed into that culture and you won't be happy either. So. No, he becomes kind of a, an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but all, I mean, you mean also the, uh, you know, the, 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 the premise that either gender should totally dominate yes. life is, is, is misguided. And, and the, the movie sets us straight on that. And it's just about full personhood without succumbing to the stereotypes and the cultural expectations. Anyway, I didn't, did not, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a Barbie doll fan. Um, I, <laughs> why would, why I, would I be? <laughs> I forget how old I was, maybe eight. And my only wish for my birthday that year was the twist and turn Barbie. Yeah, I'm that kinda, was brand new and I got it. I'm kind of Barbie agnostic. 
Barbie Nostic. Barbie, Barbie Nostic. I don't really. So I, I went, you know, I, I, I thought the movie was, I, I thought it was well done. Well, you're a fan of La La Land. And well, that's a big, La La that's La a La big, Land. colorful show. And, and, and it's, it's a huge, you know, impact show. And Barbie starts out that way and has a lot of that sure. going on through the rest of right. it. I, I, like, I like La La Land. It's a musical making fun of musicals. In a way. In a way. Yeah. And there's, there's more to it than that. And, that's and Barbie one. is a Barbie show making fun of Barbies, in a way. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, I'm glad we went to see Barbie first because Oppenheimer was indeed a much more serious and and difficult movie. It was a longer movie, too. <laughs> Three hours. Three hours is tough for people who like to be on the move all the time. But, um, you know, and I know there's been um, a lot of praise for Oppenheimer for reminding us that there is a nuclear problem out there. Mm-hmm. There's also been some criticism for the, the stuff that didn't get covered, that typically gets left out of conversations about militarism. Uh, like, really, I mean, just passing mention of the, of the Native peoples who were evicted from their lands mm-hmm. so that they could build this uh, facility at Los Alamos and blow up nuclear weapons. That that was uh, something a lot of people were talking about before I saw the show, and so I was, I was watching for that, and it's true. In a three-hour movie, I think they told as much story as they could tell without adding a layer, frankly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't read the biography. Uh, I don't know if the, um, the, the filmmakers wanted to tell only part of the biography that was written about Oppenheimer, uh, but they really could only tell as much as they could tell in three whole hours. And yeah. they, they could have at least, when they showed scenes of, of the desert, you know, where, the, where they set up Los Alamos, that that was always bare. And that was a misrepresentation. Yeah, that, so was, that was home to there, Native people. There were people yeah, there. Who were evicted from that right. land. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think uh, regard, you know, beyond that is some other concerns about the, some of the finer points that were missed. You know, I, I think the movie ran, it, there were really two stories. Uh, this is how we built nuclear weapons. <laughs> and also, this is what happened to a guy who at one point was a national hero who basically got canceled uh, this mm-hmm. is the earlier generation of cancel culture Which, called McCarthyism. That it wasn't. It wasn't a cultural canceling. It was official, a, governmental, a, a official. And they they worked him out of the system and popular. They tried to, so that was too bad. Um, but uh, and the, the the struggle, the internal struggle in in the character Oppenheimer mm. the whole time. I. He walked a really fine line between complete arrogance and complete <laughs> self-doubt. Yeah. And uh, the acting, of course, portrayed that beautifully. And sometimes movies about interesting historical characters like Oppenheimer exaggerate those qualities. I don't know. It's hard to know for sure. But, uh, yeah, both movies worth seeing. This is coming from two people who don't watch a heck of a lot of movies. I was interested... We, I, neither of us sits still very well. No, and I, I was fascinated to learn about... Um, uh, the the bad patron behavior at Barbie and Oppenheimer across the country. There was a very interesting article about that, um, and now I'm forgetting what uh, publication I saw this in. So apologies. Washington Post. Oh, Washington Post. You're correct. So um, you know, uh, it was a 9:30 showing of Barbie at the at a theater in Denver, and the um. Theater manager was in front of a you know a gal who was trying to watch the movie, um, begging this guy to leave. Um, so and why? Why? 
Because the movie, the moviegoer, the, the patron would not budge. And so five security guards showed up. And, uh, and the, the two people who were watching this and then later talking with the press about it uh, were kind of um, in shock because uh, the security guard said, uh, dude, you cannot be naked in here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to put that in my mental notes for yeah. my next theater yeah. experience. Kathy? Just clothed. Yeah, Only. go fully clothed. I mean, I know you. I know you have a propensity just to go to these movies sure, sure. in the raw, but <laughs> not with raw so, emotions. So yeah, the, the guy uh, and this patron who was witnessing all this, the guy was all confused and upset that he couldn't be naked in the theater. He was getting all worked up, uh, and then the uh, the security guard asked the audience to help. Get the guy out of there. By shouting. By shouting him down. So people were yelling things like, get this freak out of here. My teenage girls are here. And <laughs> all the while. And, and they didn't stop the movie no, for this. And the so the, the moviegoers had to miss some of the best parts. So and apparently this is not the only, you know, they've, uh, there's, um, there are now plenty of opportunities to go to movies where people would be talking loudly during the movie. Yeah. Um, Hopping on their cell phones, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's it's as if people have forgotten what uh, what a theater etiquette is all about, and um, it's this, not just about not throwing your popcorn at people. No, and and even even that sort of thing is happening, of course, because you go to these concerts now, and uh, and people are throwing not just their popcorn but their cell phones, and worse, at performers. Oh. It's like, oh my, wait, wait, you know, did did your mom not teach you how to behave in? Your mom and dad. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank, right. thank you. <laughs> but that was implied. That's why yeah. Barbie was made. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, so, and, and, and the, the article also talks about an American Airlines pilot who went viral, viral for lecturing, quote, selfish and rude passengers on the airplane, uh, saying, quote, nobody wants to hear your video. I've uh, had that experience. That I've is had annoying. That experience. People yeah. on planes, buses, don't play those videos so we can all hear it. Yeah. And I, there, there was a, a parent with some children on one of the flights we were on in the past couple of years who uh, was letting their children entertain themselves with their videos. Mm. And uh, it was it was very annoying. And, you L- know. Loud enough where you can hear the entire thing and make out all the content. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, what I really hope about op, I, Barbie, great. I hope people think more about equality. Uh, and um, with Oppenheimer, I hope people think more about the urgency of addressing the nuclear problem. The it's nuclear, that's uh, that's fearful. That's yeah. fearful. I mean, the Barbie issue that was addressed has been going on forever and impacting millions and millions of people, men and women, because it hasn't been good for either side there. But um, Oppenheimer, it's it's frankly, we're talking about a big boom, and yeah. we're gone. Yeah, or multiple big booms. Mm-hmm. Anyway, more we're going we're gonna to talk more about that later in the program, but I'm going to leave you with this as we run to a break.
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors and partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry. Catholic Peace Ministry is an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome to the program Caleb Stewart. Caleb is a student at Drake and also very active with the Catholic Peace Ministry. Caleb, how goes? It's, you know, it's going pretty good. I know that uh, college students often work as interns with nonprofits that interest them. What specifically are you, what are, what are you learning in your experience with Catholic Peace Ministry that is helping you college-wise and otherwise? Yeah, so uh, my majors at Drake are uh, international relations and law, politics, and society. So it's just a bunch of poli-sci. And mm-hmm. uh, right. ever since high school, I've been really interested in just politics, especially international politics in general. Uh, so what we've been doing over the summer, uh, dealing with like the Ukraine war, obviously nuclear weapons and just like arms policy in general has been really eye-opening, I guess is the word I would use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, instead of just, you know, reading stuff in a textbook and reading what some philosopher from 200 years ago, years ago <laughs> said, instead I can, you know, see exactly what's going on in the world and, uh, mm. I don't know, just see my takes on it and see how things play out in real time. So in regarding Ukraine, uh, it, you know, it's a troubling, troubling situation no matter how you cut it, but uh, the politics of it are interesting to me, uh, strictly mm-hmm. from an academic point of view. I mean, you've got um, a lot of Democrats, including the president, who are gung-ho on doing everything we can, you know, short of declaring war on Russia, it seems. And yeah. uh, mean, and you've got you've got progressive Democrats in Congress and other places that are saying, you know, we need to focus more on diplomacy, but they're not being real loud about that. In fact, there were in fact there was a earlier this year, a, I think thirty three members of the Progressive Caucus submitted a letter to President Biden, calling on 
you know, urging him to prioritize diplomacy. And they were spanked down so hard, they withdrew that letter, which I thought was kind of embarrassing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and then you've got people on the political right who are saying, hey, this is what we're doing in Ukraine is not the right approach. How do you sort this out politically? Uh, politically, it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, we have people like uh, United States uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who claimed that like the U.S.'s like whole point and goal in Ukraine is to see Russia weakened. I mean, I wasn't alive during the Cold War. I was very fortunate to you know be born in the 2000s, where times have been well, not relatively peaceful. Afghanistan <laughs> is still going on. Sure, but, yeah. You know, uh, not living under like the threat of like the Soviet and United States thermonuclear war. But it seems like our, again, just generally the Department of Defense and politicians in general seem more geared towards treating this as like a new Cold War where the U.S. has to come out on top. And in terms of like the domestic politics of it all, I am honestly at a loss because, yeah, we do have like people, conservatives and people on the far right who are like, you know, this isn't the right way. Uh, But typically I've found that Again, just speaking generally and broadly, of course, there are exceptions. But I've found that a lot of people on the right are typically coming about, coming uh, at it from a uh, not necessarily that intervention is bad or the United States military is bad. Rather, I found that it's more of a it's more of an argument against the president and Democrats in general because they're supporting the war. So I think it's much you know... less about the, the the people actually dying in the war. It's more about the well, what can I do as a Republican or a conservative to, uh, you know, uh, uh, strike, make a strike against? Yeah, and, and, and I think there's, there's certainly some of that, Caleb, but I also think that there are some on the political right, you know, Rand Paul comes to mind, and there's certainly others like him who are very much committed to a, a non-intervention policy of just getting the U.S. out of the role of policeman of the world, and mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, I, I think there's a lot of value in that perspective. And I, I wish that perspective coupled with uh, the perspective you hear from some on the left that, you know, we, we don't need to be spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on war every, every year. I mean, I, I, think, I think both those perspectives are valid. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I, there's, certainly, there's certainly some on the right who are just anything, anything President Biden does, I'm going to criticize. So if he recommends sending lots of money to Ukraine, I'm going to criticize that. But um, yeah. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that myself. No, that's definitely valid. I definitely, again, that, that's why I prefaced by saying, like, just speaking broadly. Yeah. Of course, we do have people like Rand Paul and people who are pushing for diplomacy, just diplomatic measures in international relations is – in my uh, limited experience, but I've found that just through research and through practical, like just studying in college, I found that diplomacy typically works better because, you know, when you have two sides reaching for the gun, it's kind of hard to talk down. Yeah. But when you have two, uh, two hands reaching for books and or just things that both sides can get along with. Yeah. That's where the real magic happens. And right now they're reaching for the guns, and some of those guns yeah. are hydrogen, you know, hydrogen bombs and other nuclear weapons that could could, could totally destroy life on Earth. And you know, you, you mentioned you uh, you were born after the uh, Cold War, and, and quite a bit after the Cold War. Uh, <laughs> I was um, I got my I became active in the peace movement during the Cold War, and in part because of what we were seeing happening 
in the Cold War. And you know what? You're right. This does feel an awful lot like the Cold War. It's the same kind of rhetoric, the same kind of tension, the same kind of one-upmanship. And the whole, mm-hmm. th- th- this whole notion that, uh, well, if they've got this kind of, this, this type of weapon, we're going to have to make sure we supply these type of weapons, you know. And it kind of, it's, yeah. it's, all, it's all centered around Ukraine right now. But we know that these tensions, these, these, this conflict, this, 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 uh, this escalation of, um, of, of warlike, uh, you know, dialogue, not to mention the actual conflict, that could all lead to something much more serious and much more global. Mm-hmm. Oh, one hundred percent. The thing that comes to mind is when uh, uh, three we- few weeks ago, uh, uh, President Biden approved the usage of cluster munitions oh, uh, gosh. by yeah. Ukrainian uh, troops. Yeah. And when I read that news, I was shocked because I mean it's been a huge movement by the international community over the past I don't know ten twenty years of banning cluster munitions because of their effect on civilian populations is and it- seeing Biden just approve that with i'm sure there was a lot of thought at the white house and by the department of defense and whatnot but just seeing that blatant disregard for the well, international community's yeah. work towards peace i'm sure there was a was lot of a lot of thought but maybe that? maybe wrong thinking i mean uh, i i believe every single one of our nato allies is against the use of cluster munitions and yet the, yeah. the biden administration went ahead with that uh i mean Cluster, mu- cluster musicians, musicians, cluster munitions have wrecked havoc in Vietnam, where they were used. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it just—it's unconscionable. Un- and I, and I, and I—I I don't know how close you've been following the National Defense Authorization Act, but um, it's still up for grabs right now. It's—it's going to come down to a reconciliation process between the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. But um, you know, it barely passed the U.S. House. Uh, but on, mm-hmm. the, the Senate was a more interesting to, interesting breakdown for me because there were 11 senators, only 11 senators who opposed it. So again, yeah. fairly close in the House and fairly partisan in the House. But in the Senate, mm-hmm. you've got you know a, a bill that was free of the cultural components that Republicans were attacking in the House. But of the 11, 11 senators who voted no, that was six Democrats, four Republicans, and Bernie Sanders— and, uh, you know, reading reading their comments, I mean, for, well, actually, looking, I saw a story about it in The Hill, which um, mm-hmm. which referred to the, the, the NDAA as, quote, must-pass defense spending bill. Well, you know, that's part of the problem is how the media present this. There's no talk in the media about the nuclear weapons component of it. There's, there's this, 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 this blind commitment to it being a must-pass you know, piece of legislation. And then yeah. you have you have some senators who, you know, come out with these really good proposals that ought to be addressed and they don't pass. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. one, one that I was particularly interested in was um, uh, Senator Merkley from Oregon uh, who said, uh, he, uh, well, he voted against it. Actually, it was, it was um, he co-sponsored some of the amendments with uh, Senator Markey from Massachusetts. Um, uh, Markey called the level of spending ridiculous and claimed that the bloated budget does not advance our national security. And yeah, look at it. It was uh, $777.7 billion in 2022. It's up $886 billion this year. And you know, only 11 senators voted no. Democrats were all over supporting that. There was very little conversation about nuclear weapons. What's wrong with these people? Yeah, no, I mean... 
uh, just thinking about like in general just military spending uh, that made me think of a uh, article I read oh maybe a few years ago uh, just about uh, the Pentagon and like just au- uh, being audited by the government the Pentagon has failed five separate audits uh, by the uh, hmm. end of 2022 just the fact that we're thinking about raising the military budget again just the media themselves are just ignoring yeah I mean, it, some of the it, very it's, a, it's a huge increase, a huge increase, 777 yeah. billion up to 800 and 800 and uh, what did I say? 800 and can't remember now, 80, 886 billion. That's a huge increase, you know? Yeah. Uh. Yeah, no, I mean, as someone, my own father, uh, as he worked in the military and I remember having mul- uh, numerous conversations with him at different times about just how bloated the military budget was yeah. and despite him and I having very different political beliefs and just guiding ideologies, uh, it's crazy that, you know, just the average American will by and large not ever see this money. This will be money used to bankroll again, as you mentioned before, like the improvement or just the updating of like nuclear arsenals, just as one example. Yeah. No, a lot, a lot of this, I mean, there's a bunch of money going to update the nuclear arsenal. You know, like, I mean, we, we need to be talking about disarmament, not about updating and, quote, improving the nuclear arsenal. You know, everything that happens, all those improvements amount to us being able to do things more quickly. I, I thought some of the amendments offered by Ed Markey were just very instructive. Um, one was that uh, they would not be able to use uh, AI to... to uh, to launch a weapon, the, 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 the systems that launch weapons could not rely on artificial intelligence. Okay, that's a good one. Um, yeah. He also, he also offered amendments that would, um, that would prevent Saudi Arabia's access to sensitive technologies that could be used to build and acquire a nuclear weapon. Okay, given Saudi Arabia's record, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> he also wanted to halt the development of a new type of intercontinental ballistic missile. Okay, makes a lot of sense. He also wanted to prohibit the president from launching a nuclear first strike without the declaration of war from Congress. Again, why would, why, would, why would any of us want any president, Democrat or Republican, to have the ability to launch a first strike? I mean, I mean I'm with you. That's a terrifying proposition. It's actually something I've been researching uh, at my internship for a while now. But uh, it's absolutely like, astounding that we, I understand it's a relic of the Cold War. Uh, some politicians apparently don't understand that, but apparently uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Markey does. But uh, um, it's astounding that we can give someone who 80, 85 years old the ability to destroy the world with the push of a button yeah. with no second thought. Uh, there's actually a really interesting uh, idea for uh, nuclear codes uh, that came up during the Cold War to prevent such a catastrophe, such as, you know, the total thermonuclear war uh, uh, that actually was proposed at the White House, which basically involved, it's a little crude for my liking, but the idea behind it was amazing. Uh, Basically, this uh, staffer came up with this idea that they would surgically install the nuclear codes inside the body of a living person, and the only way for the president to access said codes was to physically kill the person in order to retrieve the codes and the whole idea behind that was just to show the president like what death really is 
That and sounds like a really bizarre sci-fi movie. Yeah, I know. It sounds crazy. <laughs> that and is again, crazy. I, it's a little crude for my liking, but just the idea of like to show the president or whoever has the ability to launch nuclear weapons before okay. they launch them, what death really looks like is is so, an interesting proposition, so, especially... Yeah. So Caleb, yeah, you're you're the hope and future of the world. Uh, <laughs> really, I mean, the students right now who are, uh, you know, who are, you know, in your class, uh, in a little bit older and younger too, they're they're you know, you you guys are what's going to produce the the next round of energy that might have an impact on the stuff. I mean, back in the '70s and '80s, the peace movement was strong enough to have a genuine impact. But apparently mm-hmm. not enough impact because he still hang under this Damocles sword of nuclear holocaust. And so, well, what what is it going to take to 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 fire up that movement that where we see like we did in the seventies and eighties this massive effort to insist on peace, to insist on disarmament, to insist on reigning in the military budget? You that is a really interesting question and one that I've actually been really struggling with over the past. Uh, about two weeks. I've been having consistent meetings with uh, a co-founder of Back from the Brink over on the East Coast. We've been having this uh, bi-weekly meeting, and we've been talking a lot about how to invigorate the youth. Uh, I say youth as if I'm not one, but um, <laughs> we keep on we keep on coming back to this central theme that we feel like Gen, uh, Gen Z is very empathetic, but when it comes to actually getting out in the community, it feels more apathetic in terms hmm, of interesting like international relations like type of things like military budgets for instance uh we've been throwing around this idea of bringing in other movements whether that movement be black lives matter or uh, just bringing uh, the lgbtq plus community and tying in those very real connections between military spending and uh the oppression of black people in america or the oppression of uh the lgbtq plus community in america just we're trying to find a common maybe not common but a thread that connects all of it that allows us to really invigorate my generation and what would it would it help to also pull in the many americans across the political spectrum who feel economically disadvantaged i mean we've seen it we've seen the consolidation of wealth in this country Um, fewer and fewer people are absorbing more and more of the wealth and the middle class, the average person, is struggling like 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 they haven't in decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, is, is it possible to envision a movement that might also include uh, those concerns? I would the- say I would say that those concerns are directly connected, if not directly causing most of the problems in America. Mm-hmm. Not even America, simply in the world. The consolidation of wealth uh, from the middle class and uh, lower class up to the one percent, the nine, uh, or even the point one percent, is absolutely absurd. When you look, when you look at whether it be war or uh, justifying a de- uh, defense budget that is again ridiculously absurd. Uh, when looking at that, we have to ask ourselves, where is the money coming from? And when we follow the taxes and follow the percentage of taxes that rich people pay in America, it's it's very easily understood that this money could be better spent elsewhere and on things that have genuine material impacts on people who are in the middle class or lower. So that that, uh, would, that would mean a coalition, yeah. a peace coalition that focused all not just on bringing in BLM 
perspective folks, people who have been dealing with racism, uh, LGBTQ mm -hmm. folks who understand the, the uh, disadvantages that, that uh, have accrued and continue to accrue to that community, but also the rural white voters who um, maybe, you know, may, may, may be opposed to some, you know, some of the um, uh, rhetoric that, you, that comes out of, uh, you know, those other movements, but that, you know, would share the concerns about the economy and about how military spending is like gobbling up such a huge percentage of the budget and how we all risk this threat of nuclear war. Is, is it possible to build a coalition that sees that kind of um, breadth? I, I'm hesitant to say, uh, to give you my full word, that yes, that would be possible, <laughs> but that's definitely ideal. Yeah. That's definitely, because uh, as someone who's from a very small town in the middle of South Dakota, uh, I've seen all of this firsthand. I've mm -hmm. seen clashes between uh, the rhetoric of other groups like BLM or the LGBTQ plus uh, community. I've seen rhetoric between them and then rhetoric from the uh, middle-aged uh, white voter from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I I've seen it, but uh, to me, it's more of a problem of misunderstanding and the weaponization of culture wars mm -hmm. uh, yeah. than it is an actual hurdle. Yeah. This hurdle, I feel, could be very easily overcome by education for all sides. Yeah. And, you know, one place we do see that kind of bridge building happening and that kind of coalition uh, playing out and very effectively, too, is the opposition to these carbon dioxide pipelines, which are not a climate mm -hmm. solution, which pose significant environmental and public health threats, and which threaten the private property of farmers and landowners who don't think the land should be taken by force. And, you know, yeah. and, we, and we've just seen a, a decision in North Dakota where the Public Utilities Commission said, nope, you uh, can't have a permit to build that. And so, yeah, that, there's an example of uh, that kind of broad coalition that's having an impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's even some like deep irony in this for me, uh, because, again, I'm going to speak broadly here and generalize a little bit just for simplicity. Um, when we were seeing uh, the, like the Dakota Access Pipeline, a different type of pipeline, obviously, it's oil, not CO2. But um, when we were seeing this, the very same people who are now, again, generally speaking, uh, not necessarily Midwestern farmers, but whether that be just anybody elsewhere, uh, the very same people who were saying we need this because we need to become a more energy independent country uh, and this uh, oil pipeline would be going through uh, protected Native American indigenous land. Uh, these very same people who were saying, yeah, we need this. Now, when it comes to their own land, we find them saying, yeah. no, yep. the government using eminent domain or just taking away our land is mm -hmm. a terrible idea. Yep. Uh, to me, this is like the perfect opportunity to point towards the ultimate conclusion, which is. You're both right. Yeah. We, the government shouldn't be in your backyard attempting to take away your land. Well, Caleb, and, uh, sorry. No, that's right. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to leave it there. I got to move on to the uh, to a short break in the next segment. Uh, Caleb, I really appreciate you joining us. Yes, thank you, folks. We've been talking with Caleb Stewart. I want to leave you as we go out with a a song. A, this is a segment, a fragment of a song by Fred Small called "Cranes Over Hiroshima." Cranes over Hiroshima, white and red and gold, flicker in the sunlight like a million vanished souls. I will fold these cranes of paper 
thousand one by one And I'll fly away when I am done Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the program, folks. Ed Fallon with you. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic in the East Village of Des Moines is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and also on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures great and small for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. So uh, nine years ago this week, I was uh, part you know, on the Great March for Climate Action. We had just entered Iowa, but I was reflecting on the, you know, we were getting close to Iowa in Nebraska, and I was reflecting on what was about to transpire as I came into my home state. I was really looking forward to it, but I remember uh, there was one night we were about 30 miles west of Lincoln, and, and we, 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 we scored this beautiful campsite. It was in a park. It was quiet. It was away from the town. Most important, it was away from train tracks because uh, trains became my bane at night during the Great March for Climate Action because, as often happened, we ended up in a town at a road at a whistle stop, meaning there were trains coming through multiple times a night. At one, one town, I think we had a train every 15 minutes. And I mean, every 15 minutes, long, long, short, long. That's, the, that's, that's, that's what you hear. And uh, you don't sleep very well when you're 
you know, next to a train track that offers that amenity. So it was really sweet to be at this campsite in uh, in Nebraska with with none of that. And I was, uh, you know, I I was valuing valuing my time away from marchers. <laughs> Probably more than I should have, but so I went. Up, I set I set my tent up away from the camp, a little bit, just to maybe I don't know, hundred yards away from the camp, uh, so I could get a good night's sleep. And I was on I was on this kind of this this river bank, and it was a, not a river bank, a stream bank. It was a very small stream, and I put my tent uh, on the mud, really, but it was dry enough where it wasn't a problem. Very comfortable spot, and I did the insects that night. Again, this is early August or late July, maybe. Uh, the insects, the, uh, the, the frogs, um, the sounds of the night, I, unadulterated by urban noise, unadulterated by train whistles. And there was one sound in particular, it was like a splash, like a, like a, like a deep splash in the water. And uh, I didn't, maybe, I'm assuming it was a fish. Maybe it was something else. Uh, but it was really, it was, it was it, it was a, it would have been a little unnerving if I was um, uncomfortable in such environments, but I wasn't. I was very happy to be there. So um, anyway, uh, while I was there, for some reason, while I was there by myself, listening to these sounds uh, in the dark and again a pitch black night, I started thinking about an experience I'd had years before that when I was um, 22. I had uh, flown to Ireland, my uh, second home. I only had 800 bucks in my pocket. Uh, I had 15 pounds of luggage on my back. I, I learned how to travel light a long time ago. And for eight months, you know, for eight months, I lived on about $1,000. And I traveled to Europe. I traveled to the Mideast. Uh, I, you know, I really didn't have a specific goal. <laughs> it was um, kind of an unstructured spiritual quest. Uh, but uh, I admit it, I was, just, um, I was just loving exploring the world. And so I would often like work in exchange for um, room and board. Uh, I stayed at monasteries all over the place. Uh, I remember staying at one in the uh, foothills of the Alps in France that was particularly f- fun. Yes, monasteries can be fun. These monks had a heck of a party. Uh, they had a, I didn't even drink back then, but I went to one of their parties where they were celebrating with some liqueur they made, and they were very happy monks. Um, <laughs> but I stayed at a, I stayed at the, a community called Taizé. Maybe some of you have heard of Taizé. It's a very famous Catholic community in the south of France. I stayed at a couple of large communities. Those are communities founded by a, a French, a French Canadian man, uh, for uh, kind of creating a living space for mentally handicapped adults where they aren't institutionalized. They're, they're brilliant communities. I also stayed in an Israeli kibbutz. Um, I stayed with monks in the uh, um, uh, with monks in the Sinai Desert with Bedouins. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, it kind of soured though. Uh, well, it, it was an earlier part of the trip was great. I I, I just kind of accidentally met this gal, um, Annika was her name, uh, in Belgium. And uh, I you know I was looking for a traveling companion. I thought, well, hey, let's come come on down to Greece and we'll travel in Greece and and. Uh, so she sent me a letter when I was in Italy saying, I don't want to go to Greece. I heard too many things about Greece not being a great place. Let's go to Scandinavia. And I thought, Greece, Scandinavia, it's all the same to me. I'll go there. So I came back to Belgium, and uh, we were going to go to Scandinavia. And uh, I will admit, she was in love with me. I will also admit I was not. I really just wanted a traveling companion. <laughs> so, uh, And so we're on our way to Scandinavia. 
to Scandinavia. We get a total of 20 miles, and she breaks down because her parents do not want her going to Scandinavia. And she is just miserably unhappy. And we, um, we end up at a, uh, at a minister's house. I, I, I stay out. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in her car. But I decide to move. I, I get out of the car, and I sit under a bridge. And I'm remembering, thinking, you know, this is a really bad idea, Ed. You just need to kind of say, okay, this is not going well. Um, you need to just stick out your thumb and start heading east somewhere. Um, but I, as I'm thinking this, I'm filing my nails. Again, I'm a guitar player. No nails on the left hand, functional nails on the right hand. I'm, I'm filing my nails on the concrete under the bridge. And I'm thinking, I'm getting, I'm gonna, as soon as she comes out, I'm going to tell, look, I'm, I'm heading out of here. She comes out of the minister's house. I don't know what he told her. But um, she says, her parents have now extended an invitation for me to come spend her six weeks of vacation. Yes, Europe, six weeks of vacation. Think about that. Back at her place. So I, I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> Bad call, but I did it. So I spend six weeks of vacation with her at her parents' place. And we have a great time. We, we play music. We, we go to Brussels, play music on the streets. Uh, I learned some traditional Belgian songs, Flemish songs. Uh, uh, we, we go to concerts. That's where I met um, uh, Daryl Adams. Uh, we have a great time. Uh, and then at the very end of it, I hurt my back. And so she goes back to work, and her parents are kind enough to let me stay for another six weeks. But I, eventually I have to leave, and so I, this doctor who was kind of clueless tells me, you go, you got to go somewhere where it's warm. So I go to Italy. Italy wasn't warm enough. I went to Egypt. Um, maybe that was warm enough. I don't know. I ended up uh, in Israel, on a kibbutz. And all the while, no matter how much warmth I was seeking in October and November, the back was not getting better. So Annika says, hey, come back to, come back to uh, Brussels, I'll, uh, Belgium. I'll, I'll give you the money you need to get a ticket home to the States. Okay. So I do that. And when I get to the airport, I call her and she says, oh, I changed my mind. I don't want to give you the money. I'm just, I'm, I'm like, I'm like devastated. I, I remember sleeping, uh, crawling behind the church organ in a little chapel. The organ, it's an organ in a little chapel at the airport. And I slept there that night. I ended up starting to hitchhike in rainy weather. Again, it's November. I ended up at some strange, weird commune run by a guy who was bizarre. Um, <laughs> I ended up meeting a Russian dissident, a woman who had been evicted from Russia because of her political activity. This is back during the Cold War. And um, stay with her for a couple of days. She helped me figure out how to find, uh, how to get, how to get, uh, get a, a ferry across to England. Stay with a friend there. We were squatting in, a, in, a, in, a, in an apartment complex. Uh, I ended up trying to stow away on boats. And finally, a cousin of mine, an Irish cousin, says, hey, look, this is ridiculous. Here's 200 bucks. Fly home. And I did that. And uh, fast forward to nine years ago, 2014. I'm in my tent down by this muddy creek in Nebraska. And I'm thinking, you know, I was so, I was just really, I was so angry at Annika for luring me back to Belgium and then changing her mind. I mean, it's just, but you know, uh, I, the more I thought about it as I laid there in my tent, I think, you know, this, this whole, I should feel a lot of compassion for her because she had a whole different emotional investment in this conversation than I did. You know, I wanted a traveling companion. She wanted a life mate, and she thought it was me. And I should be more sympathetic about that. You know, and I, and I guess I have uh, become more empathetic to people who um, end up in uh, uncomfortable situations romantically. Uh, having been there myself on both sides of that equation. 
Very glad I'm not there anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Anyway, uh, you know, so again, the, the Climate March had a way of bringing all this stuff out of you in ways that you normally wouldn't expect. And uh, that was where I was at about nine years ago this week. Anyway, folks, hey, I got to take a short break. Um, when we come back from that short break, uh, Kathy is going to join me again. And we're going to be discussing a book called The Terracotta Camel, which is of particular interest to us because the author was in part inspired to write that book by a visit to our urban farm. Back in a minute on the Fallon Farm. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns is with me in the studio. We are discussing a book called The Terracotta Camel, which I guess was partially inspired by Birds and Bees Urban Farm. How cool is that? That's that's been fun to read. It was fun to meet David and eventually his wife Susan. They live David Hedendorf, Hedendorf is the author, correct? Yep. Yeah. They live in Ames. They both have connections to Iowa State University. Um, I think he's retired, and he does some. He does writings, essays uh, on literary and religious topics. They've been published in various magazines, and um, you know he. Ed met him one day out in front of our urban farm. Well, he and his wife were just, we have this happen a lot. It's a mm -hmm. walkable neighborhood, and he, he, he and his wife were walking by. And if either Kathy or I are out doing any work uh, in the front beds, we'll say, hey, you want a tour? Mm -hmm. If they seem interested, in, and, he is, and I gave them a quick tour, and then I forgot about it. Yes. Because <laughs> we do that a lot. So. That's right. That's right. And then he contacted you. And said, hey, I wrote a book <laughs> right. about an urban farm. I said, well, how cool is that? Well, it's, uh, it's David's second novel. His first one was published in 2021. It was called The Wrestler. And uh, it was set in 1970s and 80s Pennsylvania. The Terracotta Camel, however, is set, guess where, in Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa. And according to the author, quote, a group of characters in an imaginary Des Moines neighborhood comes together around a coffee shop, an urban farm, and a small clay figure that mysteriously returns from the past, hmm. end quote. 
And that small clay figure is a terracotta camel. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, when I first, okay, what the heck is a terracotta camel? It helped for me to visualize, visualize uh, a manger scene around the Christmas tree, mm-hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> Aren't those, those, a lot of times those figurines, that if reddish, they're not made from plastic, that are made from clay. terracotta. Yeah. Sure. Okay. yeah, like a terracotta uh, flower pot. Sure. And um, uh, one of the characters is a sculptor, and the terracotta camel inspires her to, to kind of uh, not try to be something she's not in the sculpting world, and she, she, uh, she's inspired by that. But uh, some of the other characters are very inspired in this book by uh, urban gardening space, a shared garden space that the character Zim creates. He's a coffee shop And he's, a, he's an immigrant from, I think, Burundi. Yes. Which also is very interesting because Kathy and I have worked with a couple from Burundi mm-hmm. who want to farm, who were farming they were. until they were ousted by the city, long story, from mm-hmm. the area they were farming in downtown, right. near downtown Des Moines. So yeah, that's interesting too, that this, uh, this uh, in, in the book, the shop owner, and his, um, his coffee shop is called something else, I believe, isn't it? Well, it's just called, it doesn't have a name until the, the character Drew has this terracotta camel in his pocket and he brings it in and people get interested in it. And the the shop owner decides to call his coffee shop the terracotta camel. Right. And uh, and that's that's really interesting. Um, but Zim's garden space is, uh, you know, it attracts people who are interested. He convinces a landlord to let him use some space, like we do <laughs> like at Birds do, and Bees right. Urban Farm. Um, but Zim's is, is different in that it is very community-oriented, and people come and... Uh, get you know attracted to it I think other other immigrants uh, are happy that they're going to be able to grow some of the foods that they were used to at home and then some of the local folks also uh, are discover this world of growing food and it's unusual that they're growing food in the city but Ed, David mentioned to you what he was interested in about our concept of food production not being just for giveaway, like, oh, you grow food, you must give it away, correct? Yeah, yeah pe- people make that mistake sometimes. They see you raising an entire bed of carrots, and they oh, nobody can eat that many carrots, and they think of, like, in one week, because mm-hmm. you go to the store, you buy carrots, mm-hmm. you eat them within that week, usually, mm-hmm. uh, ideally, unless you want them to go bad. Uh, but no, we, we raise carrots for the year. And we preserve, <laughs> we preserve a lot of the food that we raise. We eat a lot during the growing season, and freeze canning, uh, that's going on big time right now. But the, the interesting part for me was that David mentioned that he never thought about people growing food as their subsistence unless they were, you know, old-fashioned, like back in the day when people had to do that to a great degree. But that's what we do, and we teach people how to grow yeah. food as well. That's our Now, the, the, the garden, the urban farm in the, in the book, the Terracotta Camel, is it's more of a community garden, but the people using the food are definitely using it for their subsistence. Yes. Yeah. And it becomes a kind of an exciting situation because the city closes it down or, want, or threatens to close it down to build um, upscale housing for somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they and, have to find a new space. And that becomes an interesting story in itself. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, thanks again to our guest today, Caleb Stewart. Thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, 
Westrom Optometry, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Architecture by Synthesis, and Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.